Hello, this is Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Legal Tenzer, casual conversations on noteworthy legal topics. Today, we're going to look backwards with an award-winning legal historian, Professor Elizabeth Katz. Professor Katz's research explores the development of family law and criminal law doctrines and institutions with special attention to the influence of gender, religion, and race. She joins us today to discuss the history of women in the legal profession. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to talk to you. Um, so sadly, I'm guessing that we don't have to go back that far to understand the history of women in the legal profession. So when do you, when does your research begin? Where, where do we start looking? Well, I think we really need to start looking in the early days of the women's movement, 1840s, 1850s. We already have leading suffragists, or as they were more often called then, uh, women's movement leaders, talking about how women should be equal in all aspects of life, including political and professional rights, such as being lawyers and judges, um, also doctors and a range of other professionals. Uh, women had many ambitions that they were expressing at the time, and they saw their professional and political rights as deeply entwined. So when they were fighting for suffrage, they also saw that as relevant to achieving their economic and professional goals too. Uh, and of course, people on the other side <laughs> recognize those connections as well. So one of the reasons women lawyers and other women professionals seemed threatening was that it would position women in a way to argue for suffrage and other political rights. So this was all in the mix um, going back at least to the 1840s. But in terms of women making concrete steps forward in the legal profession, I would really pinpoint 1869 oh. as the key starting year. So mm -hmm. 1869 is when we have the first woman lawyer in the United States, Belle Mansfield in Iowa. And it's also around that time, the dates are a little bit uh, contested or inconsistent in some of the scholarship, but probably 1869 is also when we have the first women law students at what became Northwestern and also at WashU in St. Louis. And it's really not a coincidence that we're talking about Iowa, Missouri, uh, Chicago, so Illinois, and also um, within a few years, University of Michigan. Women were making many more advances in what was then more considered the, the West, but now we would say the Midwest, because women there had earlier access to undergraduate co-education and there were just fewer kinds of traditional or conservative norms restricting women's opportunities in those states. So, you know, in 1869 or, or a little later when they were beginning to admit women to law school, did they have the kind of quotas about women that they had, say, about race or religion? Or um, do you think it was an easier access for women to be admitted to law school? I wouldn't say it was easier access for women, but there also weren't quotas per se. The number of women seeking admission to law school was still very low, mm -hmm. so there weren't formal kinds of policies of, oh, we'll let in X number of women. There were many schools that just didn't allow women in at all, especially mm -hmm. the more prestigious East Coast institutions. But the schools that were admitting women, I haven't seen any research suggesting that they had a certain number of women in mind. It was just a very gradual increase in part because of women's demand for admission. There had to be enough women first going to undergraduate schools and 
being able to envision themselves as lawyers, because uh, it's also important to mention many states didn't admit women to the bar yet. So you can see a strong reason why not that many women would be right. trying to be admitted if they thought they wouldn't be able to practice law afterwards. So there kind of had to be this dual push to both be admitted as law students and to be allowed to practice law uh, and also to see women actually succeeding at practicing law, because if women weren't able to make a living, that would, of course, discourage other women from trying to follow in the same path. Yeah, and that was, I mean, much, much later than 1890, uh, 1869. But, you know, there's the story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her husband, and they both graduated from the same time at the same time from a Columbia Law School, I think it was. And um, he got, he got a job and she couldn't get a job. Right. Right, right. So there were generations of very qualified women, ambitious women who couldn't get the kinds of top law positions they wanted. It was common in the early years for women to practice with their husband or maybe with a, a father or a brother who were lawyers. Women also were less frequently in court kinds of roles. They were more often doing office legal work like probate or domestic relations kinds of cases that were seen as more gender appropriate, um, both in terms of the subject matter and also not being in the really aggressive adversarial position of being, say, a trial, a trial lawyer. So that would be my question. You know, when in the early days of getting through law school and presuming you were admitted to the bar, what kind of jobs were these women getting? So if they wanted a classic kind of law job that required a JD or required admission to a bar, uh, because there were still um, paths to being a lawyer that didn't require law school, though that was less and less common as time went on, they could practice with a family member. They sometimes could get low-level government or court positions. So in some of my research, I've looked at how some of the earliest probation officers in the country were women trained as lawyers, but being a probation officer was uh, an easier way for them to earn a living because they weren't kind of hanging out their own shingle. And especially if they were in a family court or a juvenile court, it didn't seem to challenge gender norms in the same way that a more typical way of practicing law still did. But that's a bummer. I mean, you know, that's not really using your law degree in a way that you probably thought you could use it, you know, right? It, it, it's a minimalization of this valuable, you know, educational tool. I think it was a major frustration for many women at the time. And one of the reasons that the number of women law students and women lawyers increased so, so gradually much more gradually than, say, women in medicine or in teaching. Breaking into law, the kind of ultimate masculine profession, was one of the biggest challenges that professionally ambitious women faced. You know, I have to, so I went to law school in the 80s, and I went to the University of Florida. And at the time, there was not a ladies' room in the library. And it really surprised me because I was born late enough to not realize some of the women's struggles. And I was shocked that there wasn't that accommodation. We actually actually finally got a women's lady room in the library after we petitioned. But when I guess so, so that's pretty recent, right? That's 
over a decade from 1869. So when did the tides turn a little bit and women become not the 50% we have now, but at least a substantial or critical mass of people in the profession? So basically 100 years after this story really starts. So I had mentioned earlier 1869 as a really key year for concrete advancements. And it's really the 1960s, mid to late 1960s, when we start to see a really meaningful increase in women law students, and then that feeds into law professors, um, and then much more gradually women deans. Uh, I actually um, uh, have a paper almost published now with Kyle Razuma and Sarath Senga, where we do a lot of um, number crunching looking at this, and we really pinpoint the late 1960s as this key moment where not only did the number of women law students increase, but the range of schools they were able to attend also increased. Whereas in prior generations, women were still largely restricted to um, certain schools that were more open to, to women students. And what do you attribute that change to? There were a lot of factors. Um, so one pattern we see looking over a longer span of time is that every time the United States was in a major war, so there were fewer male students available for law schools, the schools filled their seats with women. But in a lot of the prior wars, uh, after the war ended, the women were basically kicked back out. Um, <laughs> but after the Vietnam War, women were able to retain those um, increases much more so. Uh, and we have, there's just so many factors that kind of came into the mix. We have birth control pill, we have some new federal regulations about equality in education for schools that are receiving uh, federal funding. There were just so many factors in the mix, socially and political, that really came together by the late 1960s to give women more of a, a foothold in legal education. So, you know, again, this is kind of like a question I asked before, but I'll ask about it in the context of 1969 rather than 1869. And it's kind of relevant given what's going on with the idea of affirmative action or lack thereof today. Do you think once schools saw more women applying that they looked at women differently, meaning they looked at women in a way that said, we want more women in our class, we're going to, you know, give them some special um, plus to make our class more gender mixed? Or do you think quite the opposite? I think it's a little bit hard to know exactly. The research we did wasn't looking behind the scenes in the archives of the decision makers about why they were letting more women in at the particular times they did. But my, my sense as a historian is that it's complicated. And that there were a lot of factors just as more women saw women being successful going to law school and increasingly getting desirable jobs, that had an effect of encouraging more women to go. Then when you have a, a larger group of women students, they can support each other and do things like you were talking about, demand a women's bathroom in the library and right. other resources that uh, help women succeed and help future women envision themselves succeeding. So I think there's just a lot of uh, factors coming from different directions that had to come together. So it seems like there was, if I were going to look at this in terms of a graph, it was a very slow incline of admitted women, and then it jumps up in, 18, in 1969. 
Were there any bumps in between those two periods, any significant events that happened that we should be aware of? Well, first, I'd say the graph you're describing, that's exactly right. The bumps are some things that I mentioned before, like more women attending law school during times of war. Also, some important milestones of women being admitted to more law schools, um, like Harvard, I think it wasn't until the 1950s. Notre Dame was one of the final holdouts in the late 1960s. So there are certainly some key moments of success and progress along the way. But we see the big numbers and also the range of schools really take off mid to late 1960s. So that's law students. What about women in the legal profession? Everyone knows about, you know, Justice O'Connor and, and Justice Ginsburg. But we don't talk enough about other women in the law that have kind of shaped our society or made significant contributions. Any other, Anyone you want to point out in particular? So many. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I published an article recently about women as public office holders. And now this isn't a perfect overlap with women in the legal profession, but a very disproportionate share of the early women office holders were trained as lawyers. Um, and that that's important because they knew how to fight for the right to even hold offices. And they also had training and experience that were recognized and respected as qualifications. So um, maybe we could talk about judges in particular as one of the positions most closely tied, though not perfectly tied, uh, to, to legal training. We see that the first woman judge was all the way back in 1870. That was in Wyoming territory. She was a justice of the peace named Esther Morris. So this is going back to kind of that key early moment where women were making progress. But the progress was very, very slow for women judges too. So I've found, I've identified around 20 women who were judges before ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Wow. Um, that 1920 amendment is incredibly important, not only because women could then vote across the country, but that was really uh, a crucial development for states that had not allowed women to hold public offices to re-examine that and through various legal mechanisms, finally break down the barriers, the legal barriers to women holding office. And so we start to see more women judges gradually, but meaningfully more um, starting in the 1920s, including, for instance, Florence Allen, the first woman to become a state Supreme Court judge that was in Ohio in the early 1920s. Um, and she went on to be the first Article Three federal judge who was a woman. Wow, that's early. I mean, that, that I wouldn't have thought that. So I think that that is notable and somewhat exciting. So we're talking about women generally, but let's talk about race too. What about um, Black African-American women lawyers? Yeah, so Black women lawyers are part of the story from early on, though for reasons we'd all expect in much smaller numbers than uh, white women lawyers. They just face so much more prejudice and restrictions, especially in the South, which is where most Black people live during the bulk of the period that I typically study in my research. But really um, important milestones include Charlotte Ray, who was the first Black woman lawyer in the United States when she joined the D.C. Bar in 1872. She was actually the first woman admitted to the D.C. Bar 
and also the first woman who graduated from Howard Law School. And Howard Law School is really important more broadly in the history of women lawyers because many of the first white women lawyers went to Howard because other East Coast law schools uh, weren't admitting them. Uh, one notable exception to that is BU, which was admitting um, women lawyers early on in its history too. And then jumping forward a bit, we have the first Black woman judge, Jane Boleyn, in 1939 in New York City. And I've written about her. Um, the, she was appointed to the family court in, in New York City. And that was really a key place where women got their footing as judges um, on the East Coast. Women were really restricted to benches that seemed gender appropriate. So family courts and juvenile courts less so in the Midwest where there weren't the same gender stereotypes holding women back. But I think it's unsurprising that the first black woman lawyer was appointed to a family court because that seemed to be where women in general faced the least uh, opposition for their election or appointment. Hmm. And so did we see women judges more broadly or federal judges, did that coincide with this 1969 trajectory of admitted admitted students? Well, there were certainly increasing numbers of women judges, including on the federal bench, I'd say especially after the 1970s. This is something that I'm still researching with my co-authors and looking at how uh, the patterns in women joining the judiciary align with other aspects of women's history in the legal profession. But still, it's important to point out only around a third of federal judges today are women. Mm. So though women are now more than half of women law students, there's certainly uh, places within the legal world where women are still pushing for equal representation. Well, I mean, that, and I would think that makes sense given the longevity of federal judges, right? So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of these judges have been on the bench at a time when there wasn't the recognition of appointing women. So hopefully that will change as, you know, older judges step aside. What do you think about the idea of the president saying that, like with uh, Justice Jackson, I'm gonna pick a black woman versus picking just a the best candidate? Do you think it's really important that we select women to have a more equitable representation on the bench? I think that is a really hard question because we saw some of the reaction to that framing and that advance announcement. And in some ways, it seemed to undermine the authority of Judge Jackson or somehow take away from the accomplishment in the eyes of some people. But at the same time, there's obviously far more qualified candidates for the U.S. Supreme Court than could ever fit on the bench. So having some amount of attention to a bench that will have legitimacy in the eyes of the public seems reasonable as well. I think it's a hard balance to strike to communicate and even to determine how much weight to put on someone's identity for the bench. It's impossible to satisfy everyone on that, I think. But um, hopefully going forward, now that we've had broader representation, we won't have to make these hard calls as much. Um, once kind of that first has happened, it seems to ease the way and make subsequent appointments or elections easier. 
Yeah, and I think that's true. And to your point, now law schools are more than 50% women, at least most. I don't know if you have a statistic for that, but the more pool of women to choose from, the greater likelihood that when they're looking at every candidate, a woman's gonna, gonna emerge. Do you know the percentage of women in law school today? I, I don't know. I just know it's more than 50% of my law school. I think it's around 55%, though I don't think that that's even across law schools. I believe, um, and this is something we're going to be looking into more with our, our next papers, but I believe that it's still the case women are more represented at some of the less competitive law schools. Well, that would, yeah. And that's probably, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. That That's interesting and that's troubling, right? Because I'm sure that women are just as qualified, but that suggests that there's still this fight to get into the more elite law schools. Just an observation. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else you think that the listeners should know? Well, some of what I've talked about really emphasizes the hard battle that women have fought and how it took over 100 years for women to really make solid progress uh, in in the profession. But we also want to acknowledge there has been really significant progress and success that, as we were just saying, more than half of women or more than half of law students are women. And we have many women Supreme Court justices now and women have held all sorts of positions that in prior generations seemed uh, unobtainable. So we don't want to take for granted the progress, but we also want to really recognize that there has been meaningful progress. And that's great. And, and it's, it's really important that you identify kind of the pioneers of the women's legal movement, if we can call it that, because you know, it's it's it seems like a long time ago. It's certainly not in anyone's lifetime that our first female lawyers came into being, but it's not that long ago, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, and 1969 is really not that long ago. Right. Right. Know? So well, your work is so important. And this is why it was so important for me to, to be able to speak to you is because I'm a big believer that if we don't understand, you know, the, the old line, you know, those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. I think it's important that people recognize kind of the struggle I do want to say one other thing, and you may be able to, when I was a young law professor, there weren't a lot of women, and the women who came before me had fought so hard for their positions, and as a new law professor, I did, I took it for granted, and I didn't appreciate the struggles that they had encountered, and that is another reason why your work is so important, is because Everyone who's in law school is in law school because someone paved the way for them before. And it's really important to be aware of that. So so thank you so much for joining me. It's really um, been interesting and enlightening. And um, in our liner notes, I'll point readers to some of your work. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciated joining for the conversation. Thank you. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a professor or attorney with whom you'd like me to speak, send us an email at legaltensor at westacademic.com and send us any suggestions you may have. We love getting feedback. Have a great day. This podcast was created in collaboration with West Academic. Additional episodes can be found on the West Academic Study Aids Collection. Students may already have access through their school subscription and can check with their law school library for access. For a limited time, Legal Tensor listeners can save 15% on titles on the West Academic Store 
with the promo code TENSOR15 at checkout.